You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Senator Fulbright said, We must dare to think about unthinkable things. Because when things become unthinkable... Thinking stops, and action becomes mindless. Look, let's get over this intellectual indigestion and go with the data. You know, we pride ourselves on being scientists. That requires so often an uncommon amount of courage. And if we're not willing to go there, then we have no right to represent ourselves as decent scientists. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. Dr. Larry Dossi, known to many of you for all of his wonderful work on spirituality and healing. Um, he's got a, a, a most recent book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, 14 Natural Steps to Health and Happiness. Larry, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So the reason we've got uh, Larry here is he's part of, uh, of six pioneers who won awards from the Bravewell Initiative. And this Braywell group has spent its time in trying to uh, uh, fast track the integration of medicine, integrative approaches to medicine with mainstream medicine. And one of the ways you do that is to find the, 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 the true heroes, the true pioneers who changed medicine by their very early work and then have stayed through it uh, to, to, to watch the transformation occur. And Larry definitely fits in that group and was uh, no, no surprise to anybody that he was uh, one of the awardees. Uh, Larry's... Uh, uh, he passed is deeply rooted in traditional science uh, as a physician uh, practicing uh, in Dallas, Texas for many years as a uh, like leader of a large medical group down there. Um, and after a, a, a very uh, a prominent career taking care of people in fairly traditional ways, he began slowly to get involved uh, in some of the, the alternative approaches uh, to healing people. And by the way, this is a gentleman who was on the, the Clinton t- Task Force for Healthcare Reform in 1993. He'd been members of NIH panels. Uh, he'd served in the military. Uh, you know, he's just, you know, blue, uh, you know a, a great red-blooded American uh, physician who began to see that there were some flaws in how we're taking care of each other and began to offer his insights on how that might uh, be changed and, and it culminated in a, in a beautiful career. Larry, in, the, in your presentation today, which is spectacular, 
um, at the, the Brave Ball Retreat. Uh, you spoke beautifully of one of the first things that happened to you as you began to investigate in greater integrative medicine, and it was a, a personal health challenge that you were facing. Yeah, I uh, really uh, had a big challenge. It almost wrecked my career, man, before I even got started. Uh, this was a classical migraine headache, uh, which by definition involves uh, not just headache, but profound nausea, vomiting, incapacitation for 24, 36 hours. But the worst thing for me was periodic blindness. I would have these huge blind uh, episodes, and I, this became an ethical issue for me. I thought it was just a matter of time until I would have one of these attacks when I was in a critical medical or surgical procedure and maybe killed somebody. <laughs> I actually tried to drop out of medical school because this became such an ethical issue for me. And why didn't you? Well, my mentor advised me against it. He said, don't worry, Larry, you're taking this much too seriously. He said, this, <laughs> blind this always, yeah, right. He says, this always gets better. Well, you know, it got worse. It got a lot worse. Uh, long story short, and I'm happy to report that uh, I stumbled upon a, a solution to this quite by accident. Uh, in the early 70s, a technique called biofeedback mm. emerged from the Menninger Foundation. It was found that people who used biofeedback procedures with the imagery and visualization and learning to relax their bodies extremely deeply simply reported that if they had pre-existing migraine, the migraine went away. I chased all over the country in desperation, learning how to master this technique. Right. And so, uh, for me, that was the solution. I had a virtual 100% disappearance of those headaches for the first time since adolescence. So, it, you began to use biofeedback in your practice. Right. And, and walk me through that process. This is, again, the late 60s in, in Dallas, Texas, uh, hardly a bastion of liberal thought. <laughs> and so... There was, there was. Sounds kind of current uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> I suspect there was a fair amount of resistance. There was. You know, I would get odd looks. You know, uh, my my colleagues uh, at the Dallas Diagnostic Association were so unfamiliar and suspicious with these consciousness related uh, techniques and therapies that they they really wouldn't even come into the room where we had our biofeedback laboratory. They were so nervous about it. Uh, basically, this involves uh, the measurement of certain. Uh, physiological processes in your body that you ordinarily are not aware of. For example, what the, the skin temperature of your hands, for example, the muscle tension on your brow or any other muscle area of the body, you learn through imagery and visualization, through actual feedback from these instruments that are giving you these signals, how to change your body physiology. Basically, you, you learn to Turn off the autonomic nervous system, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. As you do this, uh, certain... Certain uh, medical conditions get better. For example, not just migraine headache, but hypertension can uh, improve. Uh, it's been extremely uh, helpful in irritable bowel syndrome, or so-called spastic colon. Yep. Things that we know are exacerbated and sometimes uh, maybe primarily caused by stress, tension, and anxiety. You know, I, people listening to this conversation today would probably think, how could you not have known that it was a good thing to relax or learn how to meditate? But back in the 60s and 70s, this was not part of the culture. It was just entering into the culture, particularly down in the place, down in the United States uh, where I lived. Well, you told an interesting story about having two uh, the customs agents, you know, federal <laughs> agents, <laughs> enter into your office. Well, these guys nearly scared me to death. I had uh, become certified in biofeedback. I'd established a biofeedback lab uh, in our group of internists, one of the first in Texas. And I was merrily teaching biofeedback to our patients. Uh, and so one day there was a knock on the door, and these two burly 
uh, very serious men in black entered my office to flash their gold badges, and uh, it's sort of unnerving. They told me that they had come to confiscate my biofeedback equipment. These two guys didn't have a clue about what biofeedback was, but they had been told that these were sinister machines that made all these crazy claims about people being able to do things with their mind. So they, they said, we don't have to confiscate them. We can watch you beat them with a hammer or you can set them on fire. So, I mean, it was actually, it was literally insane. I love it. Uh, what actually happened? They confiscated my biofeedback equipment. Uh, it disappeared under their arms down the hallway. But the next day I reordered uh, other biofeedback uh, equipment, which was made in America. I think that was part of the deal. These were made in Holland, which probably sent bells and whistles, uh, you know, banging around at the at the customs offices. But I, after I got the new equipment from an American source, I was back in business, and the feds never hassled me again. <laughs> well, you, uh, you were, uh, today we were speaking about you. You're called the, the roving ambassador for <laughs> finding the role of spirituality and health. Uh, you coined the phrase the non-local mind, and I, I think yeah. it was in Recovering the Soul, which was, in my opinion, uh, one, of, one of the greatest books written by a physician about the, the healing field uh, in this century. And, and this concept of non local mind caught me. It, you know, I must say I was inherently resistant to to a religious terminology yeah. uh, that might describe this process. It's, it's, a, it's a weird idea anyway. And I think that was a, a, a brilliant coup because it took away a lot of the biases we often had. Walk us through what that means and how you came up with it. Yeah, well, I think we were desperate now uh, to find a new image of consciousness that can account for how consciousness just simply behaves and not just real ordinary life, but in controlled experiments. You know, we have hundreds of studies now, just to give you one example, uh, in which people can use their compassionate, empathic thoughts to affect a living system uh, at a great distance. There's no way that you can explain how this might happen if you hold on to the conventional idea that consciousness is confined to the brain and the body in the present moment. You just can't do it. So we're faced with either having to ignore a vast database or come up with another picture of consciousness. You know, religious people for decades have called uh, this uh, larger version of uh, consciousness something like the soul or the universal mind or something mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to get a fresh uh, term that uh, sort of captured some of the principles of emerging science, for example, in quantum mechanics, quantum physics, which does have a place for these long-distant interactions between apparent separate entities, but which probably aren't separate in some larger sense. And so I thought this term non-local mind might do the trick. I talked to uh, some famous physicists around the world. I traveled to India uh, and talked to leading physicists in that country who were grounded both in spiritual traditions and in modern science. Right. Uh, that was a very refreshing and inspiring experience for me, by the way. I came back from that trip with India, resolved that this was the term I was going to go with. And I'm happy to say that this term non-local mind, which just simply suggests that consciousness is free in the world, in space and in time, it's not localized specifically to the brain body. It's not even confined to the present moment. This is the term I decided to go with. That term has been uh, embraced by many consciousness researchers these days. And, and so non-local awareness, non-local mind is common currency and consciousness research now. Oh, it must be rewarding to you to, to see how we could take insights that uh, had been generated really in, in, in new age physics 
and apply it to the human healing process. In physics, it's known that you can have two electrons influence each other, uh, even if they're not together near each other, and there's no way you can imagine them influencing each other, but somehow they do. That they do is incontestable. They do influence each other. It's been shown and replicated in studies around the world. That is no longer in doubt. And so this provides, I think, a fertile metaphor. It may be just a metaphor, uh, but nonetheless, it's a picture that helps us imagine how people who are distant and separate from each other may also interact. Mm. We have to be careful because there's no firm evidence that you can explain what goes on between separated people in terms of uh, interacting distant electrons. But nonetheless, this provides a very fertile image uh, for us to uh, uh, use in our further understanding. Start walking me through, if you could, some of the data on the role of prayer uh, or other types of non-local healing uh, on the process of recovering from any illness. Yeah, well, studies have been done where healers of various persuasions, uh, some of them belong to civic religious traditions, some are definitely not religious. Uh, some are nurses, for example, who use techniques called Reiki or uh, uh, similar uh, uh, therapies, try to influence people at a distance, even though those people are unaware that this influence is being uh, exerted. Uh, these are randomized controlled studies. There are always control groups who uh, are matched with uh, experimental groups. And there are 20 of these studies done by now, Mehmet, and they they show in 11 of these studies that you can't explain the results according to chance. The endpoints that have been examined, for example, are recovery from uh, heart attack, days spent in the hospital from serious illnesses, mm -hmm. the uh, rate of uh, AIDS-associated illnesses in people with advanced AIDS, uh, the fertility rate mm -hmm. of uh, women who are undergoing uh, in vitro fertilization. You compare uh, a, a control group who isn't prayed for compared with a group that is, and you just simply see how these uh, people do. I mean, this is not unlike how you would evaluate a new medication, for example. The breakthrough came in 1988 when Dr. Randolph Bird, who was a faculty cardiologist at the University of San Francisco School of Medicine and uh, San Francisco General Hospital looked at the ability of prayer to make a difference in pa patients in the coronary care unit who had undergone heart attack or serious chest pain. And this was uh, the study which really caught my eye. It had never occurred to me that anybody in their right mind would try to test prayer like that. I just thought you just believed in it or you didn't. <laughs> but he did and found statistically significant advantages for the group getting prayed for. If, if I may say so, this seriously affected the way I practice medicine. I, I, yep. I looked at this study and I said, I've got patients in the coronary care unit all the time. If this study is valid and I'm not praying for them, well, what about that? Yeah. You know, this gets to be... So you became be... a priest, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I left medicine. Well, uh, some of the skeptics said, well, I, I should have left medicine, but uh, I didn't. I began to reorient the way I practice medicine. I, uh, after spending several years looking at uh, associated evidence, shedding light on this mm -hmm. long-distance uh, healing phenomenon... I decided to make prayer a, a routine part of my practice day. So I would go into my office earlier every day, lock the door from the inside. I developed a very satisfying personal ceremony where I would light incense and uh, 
I had several shamanic rattles that people had given right. me, and I would shake my rattles and 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 pray for my patients. <laughs> I, I made it fun, and I did that until I stopped practicing medicine. We're only just scratching the surface here. We got a lot more to discuss, so stay with us. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We're speaking to Dr. Larry Dossi, a well-respected physician who began to experiment both through illness that he had in his own life, but also uh, working with his patients uh, on some very different ways of thinking about what caused the healing process. And it took him down the path uh, of the role of spirituality. Larry, just define that for me. Yeah, well, I have a very uh, wide open definition of uh, spirituality. As a matter of fact, it's so broad, uh, it puts a lot of people off, Uh, but... But I must say, for me, spirituality is just uh, communication with the absolute. I mean, mm-hmm. for some people, that's just too general. But I think that people uh, should be free to define what the absolute is. For many people in this culture, it's the Christian God. Mm-hmm. For others, it may be Allah. It uh, may be the Tao. For some people, it just may be a sense of universal beauty and order. And also this term communication uh, should be left, I think, for people to judge for themselves what it might look like. It may be praying aloud. It may be sitting in silence. It may be actually doing nothing. It just may be a a state of awareness where one tries to communicate with all there is. Uh, I think that if we narrow down spirituality too closely, we just uh, are in danger of disenfranchising a lot of people for whom this is vastly different from culture to culture. Do you think that medicine is getting re-spiritualized? I have no question about it. Uh, Let me give you an example of why I would say that. Uh, Back in 93, when Healing Words, my book on prayer, was published, 
Of the 125 medical schools in the country, only three had any sort of coursework looking at the correlation between spirituality and health. Currently, over 90 of the nation's 125 medical schools have formal courses exploring these connections. I think this is a landmark development. It's a clear indicator in my mind that spirituality, at long last, is returning to medicine. Larry, we had a, a survey we did at the New York Presbyterian. And granted, New York City's a little different from Dallas. Um, but, but I was intrigued uh, by the results. We ended up publishing them in one of our bigger journals. And in the survey, we asked patients who were coming to see us for open-heart surgery about whether they, they actually thought that people were praying for them and whether that was an important part of their discussion of their decision process. And the majority actually said yes. And then we said, are you talking to us about it? And they said no. And then we said, do you want to talk to us about it? And the majority again said no. Yeah. And when we surveyed them individually afterwards, a lot of them said, you know, we think that it's a pretty good time to think about our communication and connection to the whole before we have open heart surgeries, life-threatening surgeries. Probably not a bad idea to sort of figure some of these big questions out. But we're not sure you're the right person to do it. And they weren't saying it to insult me. They were actually questioning whether A, I will take the time to do it, and B, would they become uncomfortable because I had beliefs that were different from theirs? Mm -hmm. Because they could trust me to do my best as a doctor. Maybe I'd be influenced if... They're Buddhist and I'm Christian or something else. And uh, this raised questions for us within our practice about whether we should stick to solid medicine but incorporate pastoral services more aggressively. How would you resolve that? You know, I've resolved it in my own uh, thinking exactly along those lines. I think that one of the most underutilized resources in modern hospitals is pastoral care and uh, uh, pastoral counseling. And uh, I don't think that we physicians need to be that person who meets the spiritual needs of our patients. I think we should be sensitive to them and give our patients an opening to express the need mm-hmm. uh, for further spiritual counseling. But uh, we are never, I think, going to be able to embody the sensitivity and the skills, the consummate skills that some of the pastoral counselors and hospital chaplains yeah. embody. These guys have like rigorous training programs. And they're good at it. They are really good at it. We don't need to reinvent that wheel. But I'll tell you where this is headed at a national level. Uh, the so-called Joint Commission on Accreditation, uh, which accredits the 19,000 hospitals and clinics in the country, has required since 1998 that if you want to get your hospital accredited, you've got to have a vehicle in place in order to assess the spiritual needs uh, of every patient that's admitted to your institution. This is a requirement for accreditation. Uh, and uh, again, it, it isn't that if a patient expresses spiritual needs or wants spiritual counseling, they call for the guy in the white coat with a stethoscope around his neck. Right, right. I think this generally is a bad idea <laughs> because we're just not skilled along those lines. What they do is to call hospital chaplains or pastoral counselors. I think that's the way to do it. Walk me through intentionality. What, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> intentionality is simply wanting, wishing, willing something to happen. It is forming an intention and trying to embody a kind of mental energy to make that happen. Uh, you know, philosophers have extraordinarily complicated ways of defining intentionality, but that's the street definition I mm-hmm. go with. It works pretty well, I think, actually. You can test it. You can show. <laughs> Man, we've got data. <laughs> now, you, you, you spoke at the Braywell Conference uh, beautifully about how reviewers of manuscripts you would submit would be fairly resistant because you, the ideas you presented are pretty foreign to, to Western-based scientists. Yeah. I mean, the thought that we have a non-local mind, that right. maybe it's 
prayer or intentionality or whatever manifestation it takes, it, it would be a bit surprising for a Western-minded physician to think it could make a difference. And you, you quoted a reviewer saying, you know what, even if this was, was true, I wouldn't believe it. That's right. How did you overcome that inherent bias in the system against the papers you were writing? Well, not too gracefully, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, uh, I used to be very naive about this. I used to be one of these people who thought that if we just had a, you know, a drop-dead, double-blind, randomized, controlled study that uh, plugged all the loopholes, and we did enough of these that all the critics would come around and come over to our side. It doesn't work that way uh, in many areas of medicine and science in general. Uh, I think the debate about non-local mind and distant intentionality uh, in many ways is not a debate about the data. Uh, we have compelling data, I think, for anyone who approaches this with an open mind. There are other issues that come into uh, uh, play which affects people's attitudes. Their own personal experiences, for example. The worldview that they grow up with, which absolutely prohibits some of these things we've been talking about. Uh, so it's not surprising to see scientists get their backs up and just yep. dig in their heels and say, you know, as, as I mentioned, uh, this is the sort of thing I wouldn't believe even if it were true. I mean, that's a flagrant <laughs> admission of bias and yeah. prejudice and dogmatism. If I actually felt that, I wouldn't be saying that publicly as this skeptic did. Yeah. Uh, I would be trying to conceal that, I think. I wouldn't want to, <laughs> people knowing. Although, that. I got to say, I think uh, subconsciously, many of us go into environments like that. Andy Weil, who's, who's one of the pioneers with you and spoke, well, you were the two, uh, uh, these six partners were broken up into three groups of two, so you, were, you guys were paired, uh, spoke to the same topic, which is the bias we have, and he called it scientific fundamentalism, Yes, which is no different from any kind of other fundamentalism. You think you know the answers, and he, he made a point that, uh, I was curious about your feedback, and he said, you know, the more you control an experiment, the less applicable it is to the population. Yeah. Because, you know, you take out all the nuances that make it human, right. and all of a sudden it only applies to laboratory animals. Yeah. And uh, that's yeah. probably one of the biggest challenges any research in prayer is, is going to inherently have. I think we see this uh, often in prayer studies that try to follow the double-blind, randomized control uh, study uh, design. You know, a lot of these studies, just as you say, they take prayer out of a social context, and they bring it into the laboratory, the hospital, or clinic, and uh, test it in a way... Uh, in which nowhere in the world is prayer actually used like that. Yeah. For example, there was a recent Harvard study uh, looking at prayer, and they had three groups, and they told two of the groups, look, uh, you may or may not be prayed for. Now, just stop a moment and imagine uh, what that implies. Right. You set up ambiguity. <laughs> you start praying for yourself, wouldn't you? Well, that's yes. True. Now, that's an important point, Lisa. Yeah, yeah exactly like, okay, you're right. Well, I don't know if they're praying yeah. for me, so I'm going to pray myself. Yeah, that's, 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 that's exactly right. And so what you do uh, in real life is you pray for someone unconditionally, absolutely without question. You know, if your mother's going to have bypass surgery tomorrow, you don't go to her tonight and say, Mom, I know you're having surgery tomorrow. But I just haven't decided whether I'm going to pray for it. I'm not sure, Mom, uh, which well, way this is going to go. But that's what we do in randomized controlled trials. We set up that ambiguity. And God knows what that does in terms of setting up internal psychological dynamics that you just have no way of controlling once you set up that study like that. So I think the best way to test prayer, uh, just to be very brief, is simply to use it like it's done in real life, where you have a group of people and you tell them, look, 
I'm praying for you. I love you. I feel compassion for you. I deeply care about how you do, and you're getting my prayer. And then you see how they do with a group who you do not do that toward. That's the way to do it. It's not to use prayer as sort of a teaser uh, where you say, well, we don't know if we're going to pray for you or not. Well, there's another thing that that brings up, for me anyway, which is that um, if you're measuring the success of prayer on whether or not the person gets better or not, you kind of think that this whole non-local mind is operating in a different, on a different playing field right. than we are. So maybe the real healing is taking place on the spiritual level and has nothing to do with whether they get over their cancer or not. So do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, of course I do. And as a matter of fact, uh, this is such a crucial issue for me personally. When I prayed for my patients in my practice, I never prayed for a cancer to go away. I just simply asked that the best outcome prevail here. I may or may not know what that is. I didn't feel comfortable dictating the terms to the universe about the outcome of this person's uh, uh, clinical status. It may be in certain situations that the best outcome, the most compassionate outcome, is for that person to pass. We all see situations like this. So I don't feel comfortable dictating the uh, terms to the world, to the universe, through specifying prayer outcomes. I just simply pray, may the best thing happen, may the best outcome prevail, or as some people would put it, may thy will be done. But that's going to happen anyway, isn't it? You know, I mean, when you really think about it, do you think that you the are universe... so intuitive? <laughs> well, you can't really manipulate the universe. You can't say, you know, please, please, please. If I say the thirty seventh, please, then it'll happen. Right. You yes. know, how no. do you how do you deal with that? Well, people certainly do try to manipulate the universe. <laughs> I've actually uh, had uh, devotees, uh, advocates of prayer, to accuse, uh, accuse me of just uh, being too cowardly. They they would say, Larry, you just you don't have enough confidence in prayer. If you did, you'd pray for something specific, and risk being wrong. They say this way of praying may the best thing happen is just too mushy. They say you're just trying to weenie out of your prayer not working. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, these conversations you know go in a million different directions. Sometimes I think your point is really great. Now, when you pray in one of these double blind studies for the best thing to happen, and people do statistically get better. How do you explain that? I don't know. This is universal mystery for me. I don't know why people get better. Uh, well, if you think when, energetically, uh-huh. you're certainly not going to change God, whatever you want to call it, God, <laughs> the div- divine, the universe, yeah, by praying. He's not, he, she, it is not going to change mm-hmm. because you're talking. Mm-hmm. But you could change as a person. You could open yourself up. It's just like, you know, you have a glass upside down and the water's constantly pouring. Mm-hmm. But when you turn it upside right, then you're able to. So I think it's more a function of how prayer affects us than how it affects the universe. I agree. Okay. <laughs> I agree. We're on the same page, I think. You know, Lisa's a Reiki master. So uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you, which brings us to, is whether there's a, uh, what are the differences between prayer, which has a, a deity often linked to it, almost always, uh, and uh, energy work that's like ther- like therapeutic touch or Reiki or others that yeah. don't actually call upon uh, a a personified being, but more tap into the energy yeah. that's out there and perceived. Well, I've been uh, talking to Americans about how we think about prayer for many years, and one of the things I've done, I've had the opportunity to interview hundreds of Reiki practitioners, and I asked them, do you think that there's anything similar to what you do in Reiki to what I've been talking about with prayer and healing intentions. And almost all of them say, well, of course there is. Of course they look at me like I'm crazy for even asking the question <laughs> sometimes. So I think there is a crossover between many of these ancient healing methods 
And also I would add about the issue of a deity. You know, Buddhism is one of the religions in the world where prayer is really precious to practitioners. Uh, but Buddhism is not a theistic religion. Uh, they don't have the idea of a personal God as we do in the Christian West. And so Buddhist prayer apparently works as well as any other kind when you put it to the test in some of these studies. So I think we can say from that that a deity, a prayer to a deity, is it looks optional. When we come back with Dr. Larry Dawson, we'll speak a little bit more about the extraordinary healing power of ordinary things. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Larry, in the Braywell Collaborative, you ended your discussion with a very beautiful quote read from this floor of the U.S. Senate. Well, one of my heroes in life is Senator J.W. Fulbright, who was chairman of the uh, uh, Foreign Relations uh, Committee uh, when he was uh, in the Senate. And he said something on the floor of the Senate on March 27, 1964, which has always inspired me. He was talking about having the courage to follow uh, new information, actually wherever it may lead us. And this is what uh, I wanted to challenge uh, the Brave Well attendees to do uh, with respect to some of this outrageous stuff about non-local mind. And so Senator Fulbright said, we must dare to think unthinkable thoughts. We must learn to explore all the options and possibilities that confront us in a complex and rapidly changing world. We must learn to welcome and not to fear the voices of dissent. We must dare to think about unthinkable things, because when things become unthinkable, thinking stops, and action becomes mindless. So that's what I've been trying to promote in my uh, 
peregrine nations around the country to medical schools and hospitals. Look, let's get over this intellectual indigestion and go with the data. You know, we pride ourselves on being scientists. Uh, that requires so often an uncommon amount of courage. And if we're not willing to go there, then we have no right to represent ourselves as decent scientists. Well, speaking of data, it gets progressively more difficult as you enter into realms where people can argue that you didn't give the therapy. You know, you do an experiment on a pill. You got the pill, you didn't get the pill. Yeah, they might absorb it differently, but you pretty much know they got it. Many would argue that what, we, what you're really talking about is love. And energy is a manifestation of that love. How do you measure that? How do you actually begin to figure out how this plays in the healing of the human body? Yeah, well, it uh, raises one of the great questions. What is this uh, 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 force? If We don't even know if the term force is applicable or not. Uh, what is this energy that uh, uh, seems to affect someone when a distant individual experiences empathy and compassion and concern and love for them? Uh, th this really centers on a great debate in healing research. Uh, some people talk about subtle energy going between the prayer and the subject. Uh, the problem with that line of thing is that nobody's been able to figure out how to register any kind of energy, uh, how to measure anything that could be called energy in terms of modern physics. Uh, there are four known types of energy in modern physics, gravitational force, uh, electromagnetism, and something called the weak and strong nuclear forces. All of these make bleat meters move in one direction or Geiger counters go off. The problem with calling this energy and the healing transaction is that no one can measure anything at a distance. I'm talking about people being on the other side of the earth from uh, being separated by global distances. You know, yeah, when the blows your mind. Things, it really does blow <laughs> your mind. That's why I think we're going to have to find more elegant, specific terms. Uh, I don't know what the term might be uh, that might go beyond energy and get us away from sort of an energy dialogue. Uh, the thing is that the term energy has entered so solidly into the dialogue about healing that it may be uh, impossible to dislodge it. Actually, I hope not, because of several reasons. First of all, we know that healing does not get weaker the farther you are away from the healer. Mm -hmm. All known forms of energy do dissipate. So we know from the get-go that energy is not the perfect term for whatever this healing stuff is. You know, we don't have a proper term for this. I've just, you know, tongue-in-cheek suggested that we call it factor X and just not try to define it uh, with, with uh, improper metaphors. I don't know what we'll wind up calling it, but so far, non-locality seems to be the concept that's going to get us there. Because, you know, you were talking about those distant particles a moment ago, which although they appear separate, when you change one, the other one changes instantly and yep. to the same degree. No force, no energy is transmitted between those particles. That's part of the concept of non-locality. I think that we're talking about a concept in healing which goes beyond force and beyond the traditional concept of energy. I'm pretty alone in that, by the way. Um, I don't know. You've, uh, you've gotten the attention of a lot of very wise people who are saying, you know, there's something else out there. We can't quantitate it. Uh, it's, it's not as straight up as the things we've been trying to do to help people get better, but that's where the power may actually lie. And it certainly does broaden that vista, right. uh, the healing uh, vista that we often seek as uh, as physicians, nurses, and other uh, members of the healing profession. 
Now, you mentioned the concept of love. I think it's important to dwell on that for just a moment because we know that if you remove love from these uh, healing situations, if you take away this feeling of compassion, these studies just flop. They will not work. And so love seems to be an indispensable element. Call it empathy or compassion or just good bedside manner. You know, we've got a million terms for this. But right. if you take this away, these healing experiments usually do not work at all. Mm. Mm. We're speaking with Larry Dossie today. His most recent book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, 14 Natural Steps to Health and Happiness. Let's talk about some of these steps. You, uh, First of all, you startled me in the optimism chapter, which is the first one, <laughs> where you actually quote the, the percentage of physicians who are pessimistic and depressed, Ooh. and the suicide rates. I, you know, just, to, no. just to give you a number so you don't have to memorize them, male physicians kill themselves 1.4 times more than non-physician males. That's that's 40% increase in suicide. Female physicians kill themselves 2.2 times more often. That's 220% increase in the chance of you killing yourself. So should I tell my daughters not to become physicians? You know what I tell these kids? Become a doctor if you must. And I think that uh, is uh, wise because it suggests that there's a calling. Yeah. If you're called to it, you better not resist it. You better do it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. <laughs> Become a doctor if you must. Yeah, you quote uh, Thomas Merton in the second chapter, which I'm forgetting. And that's a, a, you know, a, a wonderful writer who's uh, quoted often by Richard Rohr, who's a, a Catholic theologian that Lisa and I are huge fans of. He's been on the show several times. And the quote was, if I'm going to have a true memory... There are a thousand things that must first be forgotten. Yeah. What did he mean? Well, let me give you an example about our experience as young doctors. When I was in medical school, uh, our professors told us that we want you to memorize everything we dish out to you, but within uh, 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 five years, 90% of it will be obsolete. Mm. God help you if you hang on to that and don't forget that worthless stuff. There's a case to be made in our lives for uh, forgetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, Buddhist uh, writers was uh, the uh, philosopher Alan Watts. And Watts said that uh, forgetting is so important for human beings that he wants to uh, come up, he wants to establish a faculty uh, that he would call not memory, but its opposite, which he called forgettery. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think this is important because, you know, there's just an obsession now in the culture about uh age-related decline and forgetfulness and all of this. And many of us, when we can't find our car keys or our glasses, we think this is the first sign of Alzheimer's disease. And, right. you know, there there goes memory. Uh, and I think we ought to lighten up about this. Most of this is uh, quite normal. Uh, we give ourselves credit for the things that... Uh, <coughs> we, we blame ourselves for the things we forget. We we, we seldom credit ourselves for the things we, we remember. Uh, one of the chapters spoke about tears which uh, in, in the chapter, you, you beautifully describe how in the Iliad, in the, in the oral tradition of ancient Greece, um, there was continuous crying by the heroes. Ulysses cries in every single chapter. Yeah. And, you know, we turn that upside down in our culture. Uh, you know, we say, you know, real, real men don't cry. Right. Well, in the Iliad, real men do cry. cry. It takes a real man to cry. Uh, tears have sort of erupted on the medical scene as... Uh, an insight to uh, chronic illness. For example, there was a study out of Tokyo in which researchers uh, took patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and they showed them uh, pictures, photographs that were very evocative emotionally. As it turns out, the people with rheumatoid disease who could permit themselves to cry uh, had uh, better immune markers in their blood, lower inflammatory rates, and 
over the course of the next year, a quieting of the hot joints associated with rheumatoid arthritis. They did better clinically if they could permit themselves to cry Mm -hmm. when compared to the group that just could not permit themselves to cry in response to these emotionally evocative images. For these people, the body really loved uh, crying, and it responded with the remission of the rheumatoid arthritis. As far as I know, this is the first disease which this tear connection has been investigated. My hunch is that as we look at the health value of tearing and crying, we'll see this uh, expressed in more diseases and rheumatoid arthritis. We actually specifically in the book quote changes in interleukin-6 uh, levels of uh, some of the of the cells that protect us in our immune system. CD4, CD8. Exactly. Natural, natural killer killers. cells. So these are you know, right. huge shifts. I mean, we don't have drugs that can do this right. uh, on purpose. Yeah. And the fact that, that, that folks who have a, a difficulty releasing themselves mm-hmm. so they can't cry I uh, would have changes in these levels is rewarding to all the moms out there who think it's important, uh, but it's startling for medical professionals. <laughs> right. Uh, you talk a little bit about dirt. Why is, why is dirt back? Dirt back, uh, big time. Uh, well, we've made a fetish out of hygiene. I think we've gone overboard. Uh, you know, you can't walk down the uh, aisles of supermarkets without being uh, deluged with uh, antibacterial substances and Everything from toothpaste to, uh, you know, the stuff under the sink and cutting boards and plastics are impregnated with it. It's everywhere. Uh, If we look at how children do with their immune response uh, and correlate that with whether they've been reared in hygienic environments or not, you see some interesting things. We know that if children are reared in dirty environments, Mm -hmm. for example, kids on the farm who get dirty on a daily basis, they have a lower incidence of childhood asthma, infections, allergies, and eczema. They have a much more robust and active immune system. And the thinking is, according to something that's being called the hygiene hypothesis, is that kids need exposure to dirt, not because of the dirt, but because of the bacteria, fungi, viruses that are in the dirt that challenge their immune system as they're growing up at critical moments in their life. And so the best way to paralyze the immune system in these children is to just keep them clean all the time as they're growing up. And this horrifies a lot of young moms, I know. You know, <laughs> Not me. Uh, no. <laughs> they no get, that gets Oliver off the hook. I'm not an overly clean mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we see the same thing uh, in children who are raised in daycare. They do better as they grow older, lower incidence of asthma infections and so on. Uh, Is that right? I didn't know yeah, that. Oh, yes. So if there's, this may come as consolation to young moms who you know, have a little guilt about parking their kids in daycare. They're getting a huge benefit in terms of stimulation of the immune system by you know, being exposed in daycare to this stew of germs that uh, these kids in daycare typically share on a daily basis. Well, I'll share a little secret with, with you. My father, my parents are Turkish. Uh, what he would do uh, when he when he when the children so were newly born, he, he would spit in their mouths, <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, at least he threatened to do that. I never actually witnessed I it. I did. He did. Yes, <laughs> it's Turkish inoculation. But I, uh, the, but actually, you know, the child gets many of its early immune system uh, supports from the mother's breast milk, but more importantly, get they get a lot of the bacteria to colonize their gut. From the areola, from the right. from the tissue around the nipple, which is yeah. contaminated, all of our skin's contaminated. Yeah, so it's sort of intriguing. Well, you know, I've, uh, I'm not coming out publicly endorsing the, <laughs> the Turkish. <laughs> Nor <laughs> am I. <laughs> well, good, but I would endorse that uh, the idea that we might reevaluate some of the old uh, 
uh, child-rearing practices that did associate kids purposefully, purposefully with dirt, for example, playing in sand piles. Yeah. It used to be so common. And now, you know, it's, uh, it seems to be a dying uh, custom. Also making mud pies. Oh, Do you remember? Right. Yes, oh, yeah. I made mud pies. Oh, that yeah. was fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, having pets is supposed to be good also, That's right. right? That's right. Uh, pets can be a surrogate. They go play in the dirt outside. They come in at night. <laughs> the kids you. play with the dogs, <laughs> right. you know, and all of this. So that's a way to have an exposure to natural dirt. Larry Dossi, let's end up with music. You seem like a very musical person. What role, <laughs> what role does music play? <laughs> well, music is uh, much too powerful to be uh, regarded as mere entertainment. Uh, I uh, had fun in this chapter on music. I collected some uh, healing stories, which uh, just really sort of knock your socks off. And uh, uh, my favorite have to do with people who are in neurological intensive care unit, and then uh, they're exposed to certain kinds of music, and they miraculously wake up. Uh, There are about 12 different cases now where people are in coma and neurointensive care units. Christmas rolls around. The carolers come in the hospital, as they often do, and they sing Christmas carols, and people who are in very deep coma, who have been comatose for weeks to months, have been known now on exposure to the Christmas carol to start pulling out their IV tubes, extubating themselves, and waking up. Uh, I have directions to my wife if I go into a... Uh, <laughs> I get involved in a car ride, get hauled off to the ICU, that she'd go get some Christmas carolers and come in and sing to me. <laughs> sing. Uh, actually, there's a lot of uh, theorizing about what's going on here. Uh, the thinking is that, uh, you know, the hearing ability doesn't go totally away in people, even often in deep coma. And we build up such deep, personal, fulfilling, pleasurable memories as children toward Christmas carols and, and certain seasonal things like that, that the music associated that has with that has the power to stir us deeply when we may be in coma. But this is an area, really, that needs to be investigated. This is extraordinarily important in healing, I think. Larry Dossi, in your book, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, goes on to talk about plants and bugs, voices, mystery, and, of course, miracles. And having you today with, with us has been a real miracle. Oh, thank you. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.